Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. We made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. At Sleep Outfitters Outlet, great sleep is a big deal. Save 40 to 60% every day on every Sealy, Stearns & Foster, and Tempur-Pedic. Queens as low as $249. Customer exchanges, closeouts, and floor samples. Inventory changes daily, so come in for your dream deal today. With no credit needed financing, expert advice, and up to 60% off retail, it's never been easier to get the sleep and savings you deserve. Go to sleepoutfittersoutlet.com for financing details and to find a store near you. I go in with uh, a big question throughout my billboard years. I spent a lot of time getting rid of it, scrubbing it. Do you like this song? And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, why? Do not ask her anything for which she can say yes or no. Yes, I did the first radio interview in America with Adele. Yes, I put Britney Spears on the cover of a magazine in America first. I wrote the first ever record review for Mariah Carey's vision of love. And so Bowie kind of showed me that it could be about the most tawdry, just crazy sex of your life, but it could also be about art. He represented the other side of queerdom. And I said, well, I think it's a record that's gonna have a great run, a big audience. And she said, you're still not telling, you don't like my record. She did eventually say, yeah, I, I, I regret saying it, that she said it. If I still carried around the mentality that I was raised in during the 60s and 70s in the Bronx, I wouldn't be the man I am today. I don't know what any of that means. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blaine. Legendary journalist Larry Flick, Welcome. Larry, you're just about to <laughs> interview me. No, I'm about to interview you. What would you say, as a preamble, the first time you meet someone who isn't me, but is famous and a musician, what do you say at the start? Oh my God, what a brilliant question. I usually ask them how their day is going. I take the temperature of, of their life in the moment. Um, and because sometimes when you're talking to, if you're talking to a, a movie star or a TV, like an actor who's like on a press tour, they're usually pretty tired. Um, 
if it's a musician, um, I ask them what time they woke up because the musicians tend to sleep later. And, uh, and then I kind of let them know that a, I'm, I'm not, uh, what we in America would call a schmuck and that they're in safe hands that any kind of personal stuff that they talk about will be shared by them and not asked by me. And that, um, they should not worry about plugging that that's my job and that we'll get to the stuff that they're here for without question, but let's make sure there's room for the goodies after. And then I just say, ask them if they have any questions and then we dive in. When I met Madonna, I said, how are you? And she said, one, two, three testing. Is that what you want? <laughs> yeah. Madonna, see, Madonna is very different, right? Because when I, I've been, I interviewed her nine times um in my in my uh, professional life and before the first time i was warned by her you know now retired legendary publicist liz rosenberg um do not ask her anything for which she can say yes or no because she will and i think it was after the fifth or sixth time i talked to her she's the only artist i ever interviewed who made me nervous only and she's the only artist I've ever written down my questions for. Generally, I don't write questions down. I just sort of know what I know, pray that I remember, and enter curious. And um, but I wrote everything, and I was just it was it was a, just a particularly nerve wracking conversation because she I was warned that she was in a bad mood that day. And I just, we were finished and we were just kibitzing after. Uh, and I just went, oh, shoo, like that. And she says, what was that for? And I said, oh, well, you know, your hard work. <laughs> and she started to laugh and she said, am I? And I'm like, yeah, but you know that. It's cool. I said, like, you make a guy like me earn my money. And she said, and she said, well, here's how I look at it. And this really affected the way I interview people going forward. Uh, she said, everything I say is scrutinized. Everything. If if everything I say is going to be scrutinized, don't I have the right to expect someone who is smart? And don't I have the right to do a little scrutiny myself? And I said, you know what? You do. And so from that day forward, I remember that not only when I talked to her, I talked to her a few more times after that, but I remember that after every, before and after every interview I've ever done since, that, you know what, I'm here to get as much out of you as possible so that people will find you interesting and so that people will want to either read what I've written or listen to what I've recorded. I owe you as much of my tender loving care as I expect in return that's really nice I mean I found her challenging um but at the same time she's intelligent she's well in in the the obviously she, the research in terms of herself she has but she's well researched in terms of um knowledgeable about about what she's talking about and I find she was also challenging to the extent where she would say to me why are you asking that question and then I'd have to go into 
but I wasn't sure if she was playing for time, to be honest. I mean, I've only interviewed her twice. The the um, You said something in an interview that I heard the other day, um, which I found really interesting, that Madonna mines the interviewer for information. And I'm not going to say that I'm responsible for this, but she asked me, and I think it was in 92, like, who is the best producer? Who should I work with? And I said, William Orbit. So I'm taking credit for Ray Light. I just want to tell I think you, you should. I think you should. <laughs> so but, what did but, she and, ask you? Oh, my God. Well, uh, every single interview included um, a breakdown of the records I'm listening to at the moment. And um, most of the times, many of the times, she would write, write it down. Um, because these were during the Maverick. Some of these interviews were during the Maverick years, Maverick Records years. Um and she would, she wanted, she just wanted to know um, a lot about the life of, you know, she wanted to know a lot about gay life, um, my gay life as, you know, someone who is not uh, not as old as her, but not that much younger than her, because I'm 59 going on 60 right now. So we kind of came up through the same time, but I'm a native New Yorker. So she wanted to know more about the New York that she didn't get to experience before she moved there. Um, and yeah, so it was really kind of, she, she just wanted to know stuff. She wanted to know, like, you know, she was, she would ask me very personal questions. Like, um, are you still, she met one of my boyfriends at a party. She didn't like him. And she said, are you still with that weird guy? And I'm like, no. And she goes, oh, thank God. He was awful. And, um, and I was like, <laughs> if only you told me that night. She goes, I wanted to, but Shep told me not to. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, Shep being Shep Pettibone. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and she, you know, when, when, I, when I married my, my husband, she was like, so when are you having babies? Everybody should have babies. Having babies changed my life. Uh, so she was, I found that, I mean, she's challenging, not for me, she wasn't challenging in the interview. Um, she was challenging for me to get ready to and live through emotionally. I actually found her very funny. And maybe it's because I, once I kind of figured out what she wanted, which was to not be treated like Madonna, but rather like M, um, I kind of talked to her the way I talked to my, my fellow gay friends. So she would say, do you like this song? And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, why? I'd be like, well, girl, you know, blah, 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 blah. And she would go. And what you're like, the, 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 the best compliment you can get from Madonna is to make her stop and not say anything for a second because you've made her think or you've made her react because she's used to being the provocateur, not the reactor. Um, so that was the challenge for me. The challenge was, okay, so how can I make her laugh? Um, I made her laugh a few times. Uh, can I make her laugh? Can I find her out something that she just doesn't like to talk about or that she doesn't normally talk about? Like the fact that, you know, her house, uh, at least back when we did this, the interview for um, Evita, her house was filled with candy everywhere she went because she got a crazy sweet tooth and she just needs sucking candy, you know? 
Um, little things like that. Those are the things that people want to know. And then the other thing that people, things that people want to know is about the music. And I am, listen, like I said, you want to gossip with me, baby girl? I live gossip, but that's not my gig. My gig is process and art and the emotional impact of both. And so, you know, it was much more interesting to me when we were talking about MDNA, for example, to ask her what it was like to hear her daughter's voice in her headphones on playback. I thought that was way more interesting than, you know, why, what she was going to do for the Super Bowl. She already asked that, answered that question 20 times. I wanted to hear about, you know, was she there? What did she think while she was sitting in the control room watching her daughter sing? Like, what, what was that? And so we got, uh, you know, and so, you know, that was an example of something I do all the time, which is get them to kind of go off script so that they then start to see you as a human being and not as an extractor of information. Because you get the information anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And when when they're on a sort of press round, a sort of junket where they're, you know, uh, where they're giving a, a half an hour interview every day or whatever, every hour of the day, then um, you are in danger of asking the same questions that someone has asked before. So how clear are you before you go to an interview? I know you don't write down questions, but how clear are you to have um, a theme or an idea that you can follow if it works during the interview or you don't, or do you just go in and go where the flow goes? I go in with a, a big question so that um, um, when I, uh, I, I got to interview Adele for her first couple of albums, I actually did her first American radio interview for, for 19. And when I interviewed her for 21, it was so different. And I thought, okay, something happened to you. And so that was what I said. I said, I listened to this record. I really love this record. What happened to you? Because something happened to me while I was listening to it. And, and you know, she kind of went, what? And she started laughing. And I'm like, come on, girl. This is a breakup record. You know, this was like one of the first interviews for the album. I'm like, so, you know, she wound up talking a lot about how it was a breakup record. Um, but yeah, I generally go in with a thought or a feeling. And then I really, uh, yeah, I just need to read the room because, you know, I, I, I the best example was I once um, interviewed Lily Allen and I was obsessed with that first album. And I thought she was a genius. And I knew we were going to be best friends. And I knew that if we really got into it, it was going to be amazing. And she walked in drunk ass, fucked up. And boy, did we not get to anything I wanted to talk to, talk to her about. Um, probably one of the more in, uh, disappointing interviews I've ever done. Um, so you have to read, you have to be there, you know? It's sort of like, you know, we're recording this after the Oscars, right? And there's all this stuff in the news about the Hugh Grant interview on the red carpet with that, that model. And listen, if you're going to walk up to Hugh Grant with a microphone, you need to A, understand that he's a bit of a dick. 
that he doesn't like to he doesn't like the press. He thinks the press are the enemy. And you have better know your stuff and you had better have a different question than who made your suit. So yes, he was a bit of a jerk. Uh, but boy oh boy, did she not that baby didn't know where she was and she didn't know who she was talking to, and she got what she deserved. I, I said it. Agree. She was a rabbit. She in got the what she deserved. Yeah. And you do have to know your interview partner. The other thing that I think is sometimes very difficult. I remember interviewing Bowie, and because Bowie was my childhood hero, I oh, yeah. completely flummoxed and and <laughs> flailed and really wasn't very good in the interview. So has that happened? It happens. Uh, yes. Yes. Oh my God. And it happened. In my in my one of my two interviews with Bowie. <laughs> well, we're the same generation, so it may be that. You yeah. Know. And that, yeah, it may be because he was one of my heroes. You know, the the song and the video for Boys Keep Swinging changed my life. Literally, I remember watching it on a show in America called Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. They played the video. I saw the video and I I was like a teenager. I was like, what in the world is this? And how do I become like that? Um, and and so I was flummoxed because I had done something that he didn't like. I was a dance music editor at Billboard magazine at the time. And he had released uh, Palace Athena on a white label 12 inch without his name on it to club DJs. And I did my research and I did my digging and I did more research and I did more digging. And I found out it was him and I published it because that was my job. I'm a journalist. And uh, and despite that, and it completely screwed up the plan to have this record climb the Billboard dance charts without anyone knowing it was a Bowie record. And um, he agreed to do the interview anyway because he's a nice guy. Um, and he got on the phone and he goes, before you ask me anything, how fucking dare you? And it was on the phone and little tears started falling down my face. And I thought, I'm quitting my job or I'm going to get so like, oh, my God. And then he started to laugh and it was great. But I was I was terrified the entire time. I forgot half of what I want. It was actually then it was around that time that I said, you know what? walking around with a script of questions is a bad, bad idea because I kept trying to stick to the script and it wasn't a good interview. He was so nice to me and God bless him because he agreed to a second interview a few years later. And that interview went super well. Um, but that Palace Athena interview was a disaster because he, he had a laugh he tried to break the ice instead it made me freeze and and i just tried to do an interview like in the classic way and it just he wanted to chat bowie meant more than just music because i was born in 59 so i was 13 in 72 so for me um bowie represented a world as a gay teenager that i wanted to get into yeah. away from my parents he represented something bigger and I think you know there are so many artists who say the same thing you know people like Boy yeah. George that that generation that really understand yeah. that and he re represented this this whole world was he that for you or was there another artist that represented that for you as a teenager 
Um, he was one of the artists, certainly, yeah, because he was um, he was so uh, gender fluid during that the era when I discovered him, and he was so carefree about it, about who he was. He didn't care. Um, he was, yeah, he was very, very, very important to me, um, and I think it's because. It wasn't, I mean, yes, I love Sylvester and I loved all the disco dollies and I'm a native New Yorker. So, you know, I was exposed to all that stuff at, you know, an age before I even knew. But the thing about Bowie and the reason why Bowie was, was so, was that important to me, probably as important to me as in a different way, but as important to me as he was to you is because he represented the other side of queerdom the other side of the queerdom that I had been exposed to. The side that I had been exposed to as a kid from New York was that it was uh, very feminized and very dark and very lonely. And those are all cliches that have proven to not be true unless you want them to be true for yourself. But when I was exposed to Bowie, it was about art and color and culture and sensitivity and poetry and i thought oh yeah it's going to be okay it's going to be okay you know i i didn't want to be one of the boys in the band from that era i wanted to be i wanted to be my own unique animal because when i started to really explore what it meant to be queer and what it meant to come out and what it meant to be part of a quote community I um, I didn't like all of what I saw because it felt very isolated and it felt very lonely and it felt as, you know, hypersexualized as a teenager is. Um, I wanted to know that, you know, three minutes after sex, I would have something to do and people to hang out with and, you know, literature that spoke about my feelings, you know, the gay culture that I was exposed to when I was in, a kid in New York was not about feelings. It was about banging. And so Bowie kind of showed me that it could be about the most tawdry, just crazy sex of your life. But it could also be about art and poetry and love and being unlike anybody else, even in a queer population. And so right on. It was very helpful. It's really interesting that you say that because the you were obviously going to the clubs in New York at a very young age and going to fourteen, yeah, and going to clubs. Um, it's a bit like Man Parish, who was taller than <laughs> than he should have been as a fifteen-year-old, so he would get into all the clubs as well. Um, and during that period, um, gay people had the opportunity in a club to express themselves what they think in a way that they couldn't do outside the club. Yeah. So there was, there was a sense of freedom. You know, I don't want to sort of um, completely belittle the, the freedom that, that the club um, would give people and um, allow people a freedom of expression that they didn't have in their regular lives. So when you first went to a club, how did you react to what you saw as a young child as a young teenager 
Well, um, first of all, I love the fact that you referenced Man Parish because I know Manny uh, for hundreds of years, it seems. And I'm glad that you know him as well because didn't he just have the 40th anniversary of Hip Hop Bebop, didn't he? Um, love him. And he introduced me to Paul Parker, one of my idols from San Francisco. Um, you know, I first started to go to clubs as a straight identified boy at 14 with with my then girlfriend, female gender girlfriend. And it was a wonderland of sound and color, uh, but it was terrifying. Um, and we used to go to, you know, the straight clubs of the day. Um, and back during, you know, the late 70s, which is when I started to go, um, the straight clubs of the day, the really cool ones, had a, as much of a gay population in, in the room as it did straight. But it was segregated, right? So you would go to like a place like New York, New York, or the Infinema Club or Roseland, fairly big rooms. And there would always be a corner of the room where the gay people clustered and danced among them with each other. And I remember being mesmerized by it because the, the most beautiful men were there and they were, they danced the way I danced when I was alone in my bedroom with the arms flying and the spins and all the stuff I would never dare show my girlfriend that I knew how to do because that would be gay. So, you know, but I saw him and it was like flying around and it was like, I mean, in my mind, it was way more acrobatic than it probably was, but there was just, just this beautiful fluidity of, of, of movement and poetry. I mean, it was just gorgeous. And, um, and I remember the night I got into Studio 54 by myself because they wouldn't let my girlfriend in. Uh, I walked through the room. I don't even think I danced that night. I just walked around and I looked at every man in the room and I thought, which one of these men would I want to dance with? And I just walked, like my mouth was a, was a gate the entire night. And um, it was magical and gorgeous. And then, you know, for me, you know, I was saying earlier that, you know, I had this kind of like this dark impression of, of queer people in New York during the gay scene in those days. I think when I, once I discovered Bowie and the fact that there were multiple layers to the experience, the clubs became the magical place that everybody else saw them to be. And so they were less scary to me and they became the place where I would go and I very often danced by myself, which is very unusual for a shy guy like me. Like usually in like the real world, I'm like, don't look at me, don't talk to me, don't look at me, don't talk to me. In a gay club, I could go in and dance and nobody was looking at me because I was, you know, a very tall teenager <laughs> who was super shy. So I, you know, I just kind of fell into my own world and it was a great way to navigate because I could see that it was much more than the stereotypes that I had originally perceived it all to be, you know, in observing it alone, rather than being guided through it with the person, I could see that some of the connections were sexual, some of the connections were, you know, friendship, some of the connections were sad, you know, I was like, 
I saw humanity. And also the music was way better in the gay clubs than in the straight clubs because that's where the taste making was happening. And um, it was, it became for me, what I think a lot of people from that generation, from our generation, called the clubs, which was a sanctuary. My place of worship became a club. I come from a very Italian Catholic family from New York City. And everyone in my family is super religious, except me. I believe in God, and I pray more than I think my family does, but I never felt safe in the church. Suddenly I was in, you know, I was in you know, the Pyramid Club downtown in New York or the Peppermint Lounge or, you know, all these places and, you know, the, you know, the monster, the, you know, the saint. Oh, my God. The first night I went to the saint, I felt like I saw God in the ceiling of that room. And that's where I found, that's where I found my, my faith in the fact that there was goodness in the world. I mean, you say that your parents were Italian, they were religious, Catholic, I presume. The, yeah. The, they were young when they uh, had you, you had very young parents. Um, I did. And how open were they? to you as a young queer man? Or, I mean, when did you actually sort of tell them or did you ever tell them? I didn't come out to my parents until I was 25. I'd already had a boyfriend. I mean, they knew because there was a certain point where I stopped bringing a girl around and I became a little bit more circumspect about where I was going and what I was doing. Um. The great thing about having young parents during that era is that my father was a hippie when he met my mom. My mom was sort of like, you know, a classic New York R&B girl, you know. Um, so they were young and they were way more open-minded than they became once they started having kids. Once, once I was the firstborn, I'm the only boy. Once my parents started popping out girls... The hippie hair went, and suddenly my father became Archie Bunker, or you know, like a really weird protective conservative. And my mom kind of became this like church lady. But they still, the the great thing is that they were still, they still had the spirit of their youth inside them. So they were cool with me um, being gay. It was like it's funny because, you know, I I didn't have the best relationship with my family. Um, I haven't seen my family in almost 30 years um and there are many reasons for that not one of them is because i was queer or because i'm queer um so yeah so they i mean i didn't i didn't feel like i wanted to tell them until i had a reason to tell them and that was when i finally had a boyfriend who i wanted to bring around um when i was when i, I you know i kind of started I had the the classic old fashioned incremental coming out where I was first deeply closeted and tricking around, and then I had the I think a bisexual conversation with my best friend in college, and he said, "Oh, Mary, please," and uh, and then I had and then I had my you know Shaka Khan, I'm coming out, everything is rainbows era, and then I started to have boyfriends, and and once I started to have boyfriends, I thought, okay, now is the time. 
you know, like you kind of go through what, what my friends called, you know, gay, gay coholicism, gay coholicism, where you're just like, you know, you're addicted to being gay and everything is really rainbows and anarchy and all that stuff. And some people maintain their activism and some people don't. I maintain my activism, but I also was very, very intent on being the gay guy who liked all the the dirty, fun, sexy parts of being gay. But I also wanted to be a writer and I wanted to be, I wanted, I wanted to have a husband and all those things. So, yeah. So once I started to feel like I was moving down that road, that's when I came out to them and they were like, Oh, okay. It was very dirt. Um, didn't hurt that I was already kind of on the road to success. You know, I think parents have a very, a very interesting reaction, certainly from our generation, I think, uh, if you're a boy and you're doing well in life, as they opposed also, to being being a fuck up. They also have an interesting reaction if you're pursuing any form of a creative life, depending yes. on the background that you come from, whether they see any value in a creative life. Well, you know, we come from, I come from a, a, a not just a, an Italian Catholic family, but I come from a blue collar, not widely educated family. And uh, I am still, as far as I know, unless something's changed, the only person from my immediate family who went to college and the only person who left the Bronx. Um, so I, by the time I came out to them, I had already toured with a couple of bands. I had already had what was perceived as huge success even though it was the earliest days of my career in that world you know i wasn't working at the local deli or you know cleaning people's toilets so i i scored so they were like it would take a lot for them to kind of not be not be okay with it that's how i look at it how did you learn your craft initially i've learned everything by just being super curious um, I take immeasurable pride in the fact that I never studied in terms of school any of what I've been successful at, <laughs> uh, and certainly not directly. You know, uh, I went to a city university in in New York, so the, the, I went to a place called Queens College. They did not have a journalism major, but they had school papers. So I joined a school paper and just learned how to write and made a lot of mistakes. Oh, my goodness gracious. And then wrote for anyone who would let me. And, you know, when you're at that level during, you know, the early 80s, you wrote a lot for free. Um, and, you know, and I, I mean, I wrote for And then after a while, I wrote for anybody who had, you know, had a dollar. And so I wrote for teen magazines, for heavy metal magazines. I mean, anyone who had a dollar. Um, and then when it came to radio, I had already done, you know, when I was at, a, a billboard. I did a lot of commentary, and I'd study theater. That was my education. My education is in theater. Um, but I was super shy and afraid to talk. But I, you know, kind of used the tools that I learned in in theater class in my, you know, all my acting classes to assume uh, somewhat of an alter ego that would allow me to talk and not stammer, a terrible stutter. I also used to have a terribly strong New York accent. So I, throughout my billboard years, I spent a lot of time getting rid of it, scrubbing it. 
Um, and um, still comes out once in a while. Um, and then I just, you know, went on the radio and just the best advice I ever got was turn on the mic and talk the way you do when you're hanging out with your friends at the bar. And then, you know, I had great, the, the thing is I have, I have had the most brilliant, beautiful mentors. And so I had a great mentor in, in my late editor in chief, Timothy White of Billboard, who believed in me when nobody else did and taught me how to avoid the potholes of the publishing world and the music industry. I had... Um, Sorry, what are the potholes of the publishing world and the music industry? Um, to think you know everything or to be highfalutin when you're really not, that your job is really to be a, a conduit for commerce and and that, you know, you can be artful and you can be smart and you can be discerning, but journalism is a means of, of, of advancing commerce. And I never forgot that. Even when I'm writing my most damning reviews or my most flowery praise or asking my most probing questions, I always remember that the 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 dance between a journalist and and a creative or a broadcaster and a creative is to advance whatever they're trying to promote. And if you can get to the humanity of it, of them while you're doing the job, Yahtzee, you win. But you have to remember that you have a job and your job is to help them sell. And I never forgot that. So what do you do when you interview an artist and you genuinely don't like their music? Do you find something else that you can appreciate about them or do you go in in the mindset well, of a fan? At this point, I don't talk to people I don't want to talk to because I'm an old queen and I can do that. Um, but back in the day, yeah, I would find something. Find something. You know, the most... Um, the most, the best example, and boy, did it blow up in my face, but it earned me respect, was when I interviewed Tori Amos, when I was an editor of Billboard, I interviewed Tori Amos for the album Little Earthquakes, and I hated that album. Oh, I hated that album. I thought it was pretentious bile posing as a Kate Bush wannabe, and I just, I hated it. But my editor was like, you have to talk to her. And I'm like, why do I have to talk to her? And he said, because I said so. And I was like, okay. You know? <laughs> There's always someone who will say that to you, right? So I went in and I thought, okay, I'm going to talk to her about how tough it is to be a new artist in the world and a female artist in the world. And I kept it very business-like which is really not my gig. Usually I, I open with like the art, the music, because I'm a fan. Even at 59 years of age right now, I am a fan. I'm a 14 year old record buying fan in my mind and soul. And um, I, she was told, I didn't know that that was the kind of art journalist I was. She was told by her publicist, this guy likes music. You're gonna really like him. And I wasn't asking her about the music. I was asking her about business. And she said to me, so what do you think of my record? I'm like, you know, I think you've worked really hard on this record. <laughs> I'll never forget this for as long as I live. 
And she said, that's not an answer. And I said, well, I think it's a record that's going to have a great run, a big audience. And she said, you're still not telling, you don't like my record. And you are the guy who likes records. I'm like, who told you that? She goes, Diane did. Her publicist, Diane Gilmore. And I said, it's not my thing. And she goes, why are you here? And I'm like, because I was assigned to be here. Well, that's awful. You should leave. And I'm like, no, I'm here to do a job. And I want to help you promote your record. You're a really nice person. And she said, but you don't like my record. And I said, I, you know, I said, I will. I said, I got I got to, you know, I got an idea. How about we listen to the record right now and you can tell me about making the record and then I can find my way in that way. And before we could do that, the publicist came in and said, how's it going in here? And she goes, he doesn't like my record. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And I was like, uh, uh, and she goes, and you have now got to tell me what you really think. Otherwise, we're never leaving this room. <laughs> wow. And at that point, and at that point, I had everything I needed for my for an article, a billboard article, and I thought, you know what? She's she. Some people just want you to say mean things to them. I don't know if you've had that experience with some people. He, he like, and I even said to her, "Don't make me do this. I don't want to do this." And she was like, "I'm going to make you do it." And I just said, "You know, the role of Kate Bush has been cast, and I think you should find another role." And what? Was and she reaction? said. She just said, wow. And I said, you know, she said, you know, she goes, but you know, she went to this whole tear about music and pop music being disposable. And, and I said, you know, but yeah, sometimes when people get too highfalutin, like you're being, you know, it can be, you know, really off-putting. And she goes, oh, it's all shit anyway. And I'm like, yeah, and you're a purveyor of toilet paper. Stop. And we looked at each other. We started, she started to laugh. I started to laugh. It was nervous laughter on my part. I don't know what kind of laughter was on her part. And she said, we're going to have a date and we're going to talk in a year's time when I put up my next record. And she said, why don't you send, she asked me to skip her a mixtape, back when you made cassette tapes, of my favorite records of the moment. And so I did it. I sent it to her. We met for the second album, and I like the second album. I don't. She didn't use any of the stuff, any of the influences, but I will tell you, it was a very weird entry into a long-term relationship, interview relationship. Um, I've even interviewed her from here online. You know, she lives in the UK now as well, um, and she still remembers that first meeting. I still obviously remember that first meeting vividly, um, and as an example of. I remember going back and telling Tim, you know, I just don't make me try to lie to people again. It's not a good look for me because I don't have a good poker face and she busted me. 
So you find something. <laughs> they don't end so quite so dramatically or vividly, but you find something. You know, you find something. Um, but generally, I tried. You know, I've spent most of my most of my early years dodging records I don't like, like bullets. And now, like I said, I've been doing this for nearly forty years, and I'm an old guy. If I don't like your record, I'm not talking to you. It's the most wonderful time of the year, Christmas. And what better way to get into the holiday spirit than with a Minky Couture blanket? Whether you're gathered around the tree with loved ones, roasting marshmallows by the fire, or just looking for a cozy way to stay warm on a chilly night, Minky blankets are the perfect addition to your Christmas festivities. With a wide range of festive designs and colors, you can find the perfect blanket to match your holiday decor or gift to your loved ones. So this Christmas, make your holiday even cozier with a Minky Couture blanket. Head to MinkyCouture.com now and find your perfect blanket just in time for the holiday. Happy holidays from Minky Couture. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Artists sometimes, when they've been around a while, they like people to, to blow smoke up their ass, and they, they surround oh, themselves yeah. with yes people, and they don't meet someone who will say their honest truth uh, to them and confront them in any way. So I can imagine that it's sometimes quite refreshing for a for someone who's got some intelligence and realizes that actually it's good to be around people who do have opinions and do say what they want to say. You know, she was very much the, the darling of critics at the time. And so I think it was new for her to hear someone saying, I don't really like your record. It was terrifying for the publicist because, you know, she's the one to put me in a room with her. Um, it was a lot, you know, it's, um, but, but the thing is, if you establish yourself as having that kind of credibility, then when you go into the room and the thing is, I have, thank goodness, established a, you know, a degree of credibility. Um, when you go into the room with an artist who either knows who you are or whom you've had a past with, if you say, oh, my God, that record's great, they're excited because they know you're not lying to them. Um, and I prefer that. And the thing is, I'm, I always, I'm, I'm the guy who goes in wanting to like a record. I despise hip people and people who, you know, are trying to kind of, I'm very populist in my in my tastes you know i like cool edgy underground music but if there's no hook there's no soul there's no something for me to latch on to get off get out of my ears so but i i tend to you know i it's okay that you know in the uk joel corey is like a huge huge dance artist whereas all of my very cool dance friends think he's a hack and i'm like but you're not getting what he's doing and you're not keeping up with the times can you be friends with artists because i always felt that there wasn't this sort of symbiotic relationship would be about as you know when i was on mtv they would they would think then i'm a route for them for mtv 
and hanging out with an artist is some, you know, some things that you can tell your friends or whatever. It's a very interesting thing you bring up there, though, because I have a lot of artists with whom I'm very friendly. I think it could be friendly with artists, but there are not a lot of artists who I can go, do, 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 do. hey, how you doing? It's usually predicated on some sort of transaction. You know, um, I think that it's much more realistic uh, and much more honest when people say, oh, my God, you have all these people, all these famous people who will like click on your stuff on social media and all that crap. And it's like, you know, and even in my post, I'll be like, oh, my pal, this person. Like, it's really again, it's predicated on the transaction that we know each other because we like each other's art for lack of a better way to put it right so we respect each other it doesn't mean i'm they're the person i think of when i'm having a bad day and want to call somebody that's a friend right i have you know a 30 plus year relationship with gloria stefan and i know that if i need something i can call her i have her number have I ever called her when I needed something? No. But there's a sort of like, when we come together, you know, inevitably she'll say, oh, you know, it's so nice to see family. You're a part of our family. And I'll say, well, I think of you as part of my family too. But then we don't talk for another year. So it's just, it's a very kind of warped kind of sense of connection. And I think, if you don't stay grounded in that, people who work on our side of the fence can get very, very, very hurt when they realize it's not true. Because there's nothing worse than thinking Kylie Minogue is your friend. And what she really is, is just someone who really likes you. And you've managed to, you know, embed yourself on her radar so that if she sees you on social media, she'll click like, or she'll say cool picture. Or if you ask for an interview with her, she'll say yes. That's not friendship. That's something else. It's more than acquaintanceship, but it's not friendship. Friendship, the people, my friends are the people I call and say, I'm in a fucked up mood today. I'm not calling Leanne Rhymes to tell her that. That said, when Leanne's in town, if she, you know, she wants to have, you know, a drink with her husband and her manager, that'll happen. Or she'll send me a DM saying, you know, I really would like to talk to you about something. That's more of a, it's, a, I, we need a new word for it because it's not friendship. Now, you understood music really from your parents when you were very young and you used to yeah. DJ for them. Uh, <laughs> you have done a, your research. This is a very <laughs> wide term. DJs, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really. I used to play records to... on the record player. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I started doing that when I was six because I was obsessed with music. My family, considering it's very interesting, not a single person in my family has any musical skill. But there was always music playing in our house, and I think it's because my parents were young. 
when they got married. So they were, they, you know, they were 16 and 17 when they were married, 17 and 18 when they had me. So they were still very much in that, quote, demographic of people who were consuming music actively. And because they were still in that demographic and they started to have kids and they had me, I instantly gravitated toward it and um, played my parents' records all the time on, on the stereo. And um, they used to have their little hippie house parties. And um, yeah, it was too much work for them. And, you know, they would always start out where they would start playing 45s. And then they'd be drinking and laughing and doing whatever. And it'd be like, they would forget to play the music. And I just thought, oh, I can do that. I'll play up because it was fun to play with the stereo. And then I could play the records I liked and not the stuff I didn't like. And I learned really quickly how certain how certain songs would make them get up and dance on the living floor. Certain songs would make them sit down. And certain songs, they would say, ah, take that crap off. I was six years old, but I picked it up. Um, but what I really learned was that if I kept doing that, they wouldn't send me to bed. <laughs> so I got to stay up until the party ended, which was like, you know, made me feel like one of the cool grown-ups. Um, and none of this was conscious thought other than getting to stay up. You know, none of this like learning how to how to move a room with music. I didn't know any of that in the front of my brain. I was six years old, seven years old, eight years old. This is the easy the years that I was doing it. I just it was just like a subconscious instinctual thing. And it really was just like it was just a chance to play with my parents' records. And then eventually I started getting my own records. Um and it was fun. And I still do it. I Did you understand something about sequencing from, I mean, I, I know from that age, probably not, but in terms of like what goes next to what and how you. Well, I learned, it. I learned how to keep them dancing. I intuitively knew that if, if I had them dancing to like, you know, like a Motown record, that if I played my father's grand funk record, that would not be a good thing because everyone was going to go, ooh, bad trip, man. It's the 60s, remember. Um, <laughs> so I knew to just kind of keep it going. And and then, you know, as I got older, I started to learn about sequence and how many records were so poorly sequenced. And now I'm obsessed with sequence. Um and yes, I did. I became very, very, I think by the time I was 10, it went from being kind of this unconscious thought to being front of the brain. I don't like the way that song sounds after that. And I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to say it like I'm just saying now, but I would, I would know and I would, you know, create tapes with the songs from an album in the order that I liked. That was how I put it in my brain and you know and i would um i kept you know i had many many music notebooks that i wrote things down in, and one was a book of my perfect albums with like sequences of songs that were different from albums so that when i finally heard a perfect album that i couldn't change the sequence to i wore that album out what is the perfect right. album then? Give me an example. The, perf the perfect album is Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. Followed by Bad Girls by Donna Summer. 
those are, you can't change the sequence to either of those records. They are perfect. The, the sequence of rumors is, people like to say it tells a story, but it doesn't tell a story. It's like, it's episodic, like a soap opera. And every song leaves you on a cliffhanger and it picks up another story and it leaves you on a cliffhanger. And then it picks up the story that you didn't, you heard two songs ago. And it does that until you get to the end of the album where you have Gold Dust Woman and the complete unraveling of a human being. Like if you listen to that song, they leave you falling down a cliff because there's no hope in that song. Right, the echo, and the, if you listen to the shrieks at the end of Stevie, it is emblematic of the fact that this is a band that, in some way, will forever be broken, even if they continue on as long as they have. And to me, that is like, like mind blown. I've never heard a better album than that. And then I heard Bad Girls, and to me, that is one woman's very very storied life um and i remember god i'm so lucky i got to tell donna summer my interpretation of bad girls and it's the moment that we it made us friendly in that kind of way that i was just describing because i said you know we meet her and she's a disaster and then she falls in love and then the love falls apart and then she's back on the street and it's the saddest ending ever. Sunset People is the coldest, darkest, saddest song ever in the world. And nobody else sees it that way except me, uh, because they all think it's like this anthem of nightlife. And I'm like, no, it's the saddest song ever. It's resignation that your life is reduced to neon that will eventually break. And this was a reflection and of Donna Summer as well? She would not confirm nor deny my interpretation of the album, um, but she was very moved by it. And her favorite song ever that she ever wrote is on that album. It was uh, There Will Never Be a You. There'll never be another you. Never be you. Um, and is that number her... seven? Because... It is. It is. It's very interesting you say that. It is, in terms of a double album set, it would be number seven. Because you know my rule, which is number seven on an album or thereabouts, roughly two thirds in, is where the artist's favorite song lies. And you asked me earlier where I would go if uh, I was talking to somebody and you know it just wasn't going well. I would memorize the title of track seven and say, can we talk about your records? Talk about the songs? I want to ask you, not about the single, at first, which they love, because they hate talking about the single. I want to talk about track, I want to talk about this song. I wouldn't say track seven. I would say, I want to talk about this song. This is the one. And every single time, I am a 100 percenter with that question. They always say, that's my favorite song. I've never, ever, 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 ever had an artist say, 
oh, really? I don't really like that song. I've had them say, that's my favorite song. I've had them say, the label didn't want me to put that song on the record. I had to fight to have that on the record. That's where I get to do my thing. Because uh, the sequence of a record is this, right? Um, you load your hits on top. You have your A&R, A&R Artists and Repertoire label commitments in the middle. And then from track seven down is where you have the songs that, that's like you, you paid your bills and now you have money, you have fun money, right? You have pub money, you have money to go buy a new shirt. You know, that's where, that's where the cash is, the spending money is. And it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it, you know, I haven't, I haven't tested that out recently, but as recent as 2021, yeah, track seven. And it actually taught me to listen to a record bottom up. Because if you really want to know what the artist is trying to say, start with the end. Oh, wow. Gonna, I'm going to start listening to music in a completely different way now. Um, Bowie said of Giorgio, Giorgio Moroder that this is the future, you know, I Feel Love, this is the future of music. Um, of course, I Feel Love is a Donna Summer track. You were friends yeah. with Donna Summer, and she went through I was. this really uh, difficult period uh, where she says that she didn't say, um, and... And I really haven't got the phrase, so you're going to have to correct me on this. The Bible didn't write Adam and Adam and Steve; they wrote Adam and Eve. Yeah, um, she said it. She said it. She backpedaled out of it because suddenly everything came undone. Um, she had become, you know, she in her early days she uh, had a lot of. Uh, issues with alcohol and partying and she had found God. I don't think she ever lost God. I think she found God as part of her sobriety. You know, a lot of people when they when they find sobriety, what they're really finding is someone to help, you know, a new addiction. And for some of them the addiction is God and prayer. Right? Like pray 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 the booze in a temptation away. Um and she was, you know, like like gay people are when they first come out. She was addicted to all things biblical and all things that felt like the saving grace of her life. And, you know, the thing about Donna was that she could be very glib. She had a really good sense of humor, very raucous. Um, and, you know, she did eventually in an interview uh, we did for... Alq, the station I was on at, at Sirius XM, she did eventually say, "Yeah, I, I, I regret saying it, but she said it. She one hundred percent said it." And you know, from my point of view, she paid her penance. Um, and you know, I, I understand why some people still have a problem with her and with that statement because. It lives forever. Here we are, it's 2023. She's been gone for years. She said that thing about, made that comment about 30 some odd years ago. Um, and it's a hard one to shake. Um, and I think it's, you know, the older you get, the less you 
find your identity in someone else's words and more in yourself. And, you know, I always, when people would say, how come you, how can you still, how can you still play Donna Summer records on the radio? This was before she came on. And I said, because, you know, it, what she, she, she raised, she went on to raise millions of dollars for AIDS research and relief. Um, and, I don't need a singer to tell me my worth as a gay man. And if you're getting your sense of worth from a singer, you have bigger issues than anything she might have said. Um, and I think that's why, you know, when people say things and all of this, like, you know, I this overcorrection that we're living through right now in society, I find it necessary on one hand and I find it really extreme and unnecessary on the other because you know what? I, I like knowing who doesn't like me because then I don't have to pay you no mind. You know, it saves me a lot of time in vetting to know which side of the street to walk on. And, um, and I'll always listen because I believe in redemption. I've done a lot of really crappy things in my life and I've said a lot of things that, if someone was recording them, I might not have a career. You might not be talking to me because times change, people change, opinions change, education happens, enlightenment happens. You know, if I still carried around the mentality that I was raised in during the sixties and seventies in the Bronx, I wouldn't be the man I am today. Um, and I like the man I am today. And I'm glad that I lived through all of that. And I'm glad that, you know, other, you know, and, and I, and I, you know, I mean, I paid, I paid for my sins. We all pay for our sins one way or another. And she paid for hers. So move on or not. That's the thing. Don't get in the way of me having a bad, you know, having a good day and I won't get in the way of you. So if you want to carry that grudge, Trust and believe the person you're mad at is not thinking about you. How aware were you in your career of your immense power to break artists <laughs> in America? No, because you broke, no, but you, you know, you broke artists in the biggest market, the biggest territory in the world. That makes you a very important figure uh, for these artists. I, every once in a while, that's, first of all, thank you. Oh my God. Can I talk to you every single day of my life? Because <laughs> I'll, I could I'll really some smoke. <laughs> I could use I could use the uh, the uh, the lift. Um, I I I was very aware of the fact that I was aligned with powerful entities, and I tried not to abuse that power. Meaning. Um, I didn't only write about my friends, meaning, you know, you make mistakes and pick the wrong record or reject the wrong record. I could tell you about some mighty misses in my career. Um, but you use it well and, and you, you know, I knew that I learned really quickly that only this is a very strange analogy but ride with me for a second you look at a movie right a movie a movie theater poster and you see the quotes and 
only the quotes from the people with with credibility are tagged in in a font size that you can read. The quotes that are from people with no credibility who just always say, that's nice, that's nice, that's nice. Their name is in the kind of print that you need a magnifying glass to read. As soon as I figured that out, I wanted to be in print that you could read. And so what I wanted to do was make sure that, and I figured out how did that happen? That happened because they were not afraid to say they didn't like something. And they stood their ground, even when it got tough. And that when they liked something, they were unabashed in their praise. And they didn't have a company line as much as they had a, this is, they had an emotional reaction to it. And so once I figured all that out, it became super easy. With that allegedly came power because I had this, this vehicle that I was a part of called Billboard Magazine and then later Sirius XM Radio, where a lot of people were looking at the vehicle and I just happened to be in the vehicle and I used my seat and my place on that vehicle as honestly as I could and I hope for the best. So I take enormous pleasure in, you know, I never say I broke a record, but I do always very proudly say, yes, I did the first radio interview in America with Adele. Yes, I put Britney Spears on the cover of a magazine in America first. You know, uh, those things, you know, I, I wrote the first ever record review for Mariah Carey's Vision of Love. That's how I look at it. I look at it as like, I did my job. I identified the winner and I trumpeted it. Does that mean I have power? I don't know, hopefully, you know, my ego wants me to believe I have power. But, you know, but I never got caught up in it. And I still don't get caught up in it because I never lived a luxury life. <laughs> so I would kind of like be sitting in my, you know, my beautiful studio at Sirius XM in New York. And I'd be like, oh, yes. Hello, Mariah. Hello, Brittany. <laughs> and then I get on a smelly train and go home and scoop up cat shit. You know, and I would even say to my husband, this is not power. This is not, no, actually, I would say, this is not the life of a, of a famous journalist as I'm scooping up cat poop. I should have someone doing this for me. But at the same time, you think, this is life. This is it. It's all, it's all, it's all smoke. It's all yeah. smoke. And it's fun. It's fun to say, to hear a record and hear something that hits you in the heart, hits you in the gut, hits you in the knees, and then get to tell people. I still, I'm like an old queen, I still love it so much. I still go crazy for it. And you know, half the time people don't agree with me, but that's okay. I have a good music collection. And like I said, I've, missed a, I've made a few ding dong errors, so. I always remember those a lot more than I remember the hits. So tell me one. Spice Girls. <laughs> Spice Girls showed up to my office at Billboard unannounced with Wannabe. They wanted to meet the guy who play, who who talked about pop music. 
and they wanted to play me the record. And I was on deadline. And I said, I can't see them. I'm on deadline. And I turned the Spice Girls away. Now, the footnote to that story is we all eventually had a big laugh about it later. But in that moment, I was indignant. I'm like, how dare you show up at, a, at my office when I'm on deadline? Public, I didn't have to say it. I was like, you know I'm on deadline? Why are you going to make me look like a schmuck to these girls? I don't even know them. And they were like, you know, annoyed because they were already the biggest thing, but we didn't know about them in America. And I was just like, get out, go away. So we met on the, the next record and had a big laugh. And now actually I'm friendly, there goes that word again, right? With, uh, with all of them, especially uh, the two males. All right. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that was, that's probably my most, my most um, notable, whoa. <laughs> I, I sense the spike, Spice Girls packing. I mean, I had a much more limited career. I was seven years on MTV Europe, which went out to about 31 countries. Um, yeah. Interviewed all pop stars, came to Germany, ran a TV channel. That went wrong um, eventually. And I completely changed my life. And I've ended up being a screenwriter today, although I do the podcast because it's something that I really love and I like to reminisce and I like to talk about stories uh, of the past and I like music and it's fun. Yes. Where is your identity today? You know, I'm, I'm right now um, making friends with my identity right now. It's a great time for us to talk about this because uh, during COVID, I had a very extreme life-endangering case of COVID at the very beginning, before we even knew what COVID was. Um, nearly died. Um, that was in 2020. And I spent the that rest of that year on lockdown, because in America, we were locked down for really almost a year. But I told my husband, who was here in Wales, we were bouncing back and forth for most of our marriage. Um, I said, I, I think it's time. You know, I stopped being happy with what I was doing as serious. Um, I was interviewing more actors than music artists, and they were kind of like generic. I always said, I can't, I can only get it up for generic blonde number 21 from that Netflix show that's not going to succeed so many times. Um, it just stopped being fun. And and I was just ready to get out. I was ready to come to Wales. We had a we have a really nice house here that we paid for. And I was spending a fortune on rent in the in in America. Is your next so um cool. No, 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 this is my husband picking that uh, up. I'm sorry. No problem. Um, um and um so I you know, saved up and quit in, in uh uh, at the end of 2020, moved here, took the longest break I've ever had in my entire life, six months off, uh, and just became acclimated to life in Wales. And um, love it. But, it, you know, in that acclimation, you have to kind of sit still. I didn't realize the time off meant I had to think about stuff. And... Um, and who I am and what I'm going to do next. And along the way, I found I wound up working for a company called Barrow, 
I'm a music curator. I work on their label. I do, you know, I'm a jack of all music trades at that company and I love it. I love it. Um, but I'm also kind of reconciling what it means when people say to me the nice things that you've said to me. Because I've been so donkey pulling the cart for 40 years, almost 40 years, they haven't really assessed who I am. You know, I'm just the guy who talks about music. I'm the guy who quizzes people. You know, it's, it's, I've always viewed it as being my, my offering to the world. Um, but I don't know what any of that means. And so, you know, I have a slower life, but I have a great job with great people who treat me exceptionally well. And I'm figuring that out. I mean, so I'm thinking much more about like, oh my God, what does it mean to have done all this? I can tell you that I'm, I still have a little bit of a burn in my belly to do stuff, but I'm also kind of figuring out that I don't want to kill myself anymore in the name of it. And that maybe, you know, it's good to be able to say, I did that. I did that. You know, when you work for, when you work for a big company, one of the downsides of working for a big company is inevitably there will be one very powerful person, if not more, who will tell you that you are nothing without the logo and that you don't really have the power, that the logo has the power. I was actually in a meeting once at Billboard with a publisher who's not there anymore, who said, you are nothing without the Billboard logo. You are nothing. Your words mean nothing. Anybody could do what you do. And I believed him and I faked it for a lot of years. So, you know, now that I, when people pay attention to me now without a big logo attached to my name, I'm still getting used to being uh, to that. And, 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 and I don't always know what to say. I mean, I, I love telling my stories. I have tons of them. And, you know, it always gives me, a, I, I always feel a little extra fancy on the day when I do something like this. And I always think, oh, God, I've really done some cool stuff. And I think I should be, I should be richer. I should have more money. Why don't I have more money? Why don't I, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> well, all I can suggest, Larry Flick, is that you ring up some of those part-time friends <laughs> and say, hang on a minute, baby, I made you. I made you back then. <laughs> but I'm really, it's really great to talk to you because you have contributed so much to the culture, which is a really important thing from an Thank angle you. of being a, a journalist, from actually, you know, breaking artists, which has been very important to these artists, I'm sure, as well, and uh, gave them a big push along the way. And I'm glad to hear uh, that you're happy, married in Wales, and um, you're doing fine now after uh, um, the scares of the last couple of years. Yeah, that... no, I actually have never been, in terms of my life, never been happier. Never been happier. You know, we have a, a cute little house in a nice town, uh, five minutes from sheep farms and it's nice but you know I still sit in this little room that you're seeing me in right now blasting rock and roll and disco and still loving it and still figuring out ways to tell people about the music I love 
You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. When you save on auto insurance for driving safe with USAA SafePilot, you'll feel like a big deal. Even in a traffic jam. Save up to 30% with USAA SafePilot. Restrictions apply. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hulu.